Okay, good morning, church. As always, it is a pleasure to stand before the people of God and open His Word and proclaim the truths that are contained therein. This morning, we're going to continue with our study of the book of Ezra. We've been in Ezra for some time now, and we'll continue um, probably till just before Christmas. We'll hopefully be finishing up this book about that time. But this morning, we will be in Ezra chapter 7. Ezra chapter 7. We'll take chapter 7 over the next couple of weeks. And by way of of introduction today, uh, this is the first time that Ezra actually shows up in the book that bears his name. So he's he's being introduced to us today, and hopefully our examination of this text will clarify some things about uh, Ezra, who he was, and what God was accomplishing through him. But let's begin just by reading the text for today. We'll, we'll consider the first ten verses of Ezra chapter 7. First ten verses. Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah, son of Merioth, son of Zerahiah, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, son of Phinehas, son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, the chief priest. This Ezra, not to be confused with any other Ezra, this Ezra, this specific Ezra, went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel, and some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. Well, as we've already said, this is the introduction of Ezra within the book of Ezra. And as we, uh, as we look at this text today, I'd like for us to take away two primary uh, ideas, two primary thoughts. First of all, I'd like for us to get a picture of who Ezra is. Um, who he, uh, where he comes from, his purpose, uh, the way he was used by God, all of those details, I think, are illuminated here in in these first 10 uh, verses of this chapter. But also, secondly, and, and maybe even more importantly, I would like for us to see what Ezra has to teach us today. Um, what does this Jewish priest who lived 2,500 years ago have to teach Christians in this modern age? And I think it's going to be very important for us to use Ezra as a pattern and as a model for ourselves today. So before we get into that, let's take a moment and ask God's blessing upon our time in his word this morning. Father, we are grateful again together as your people. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have not left us without communication from you. Um, you uh, You have communicated everything that we need for life and godliness in the pages of sacred scripture. And Lord, we thank you for that, and we thank you for this time to study and to learn from the book of Ezra. I pray, Father, that you will quiet our minds, quiet our hearts, 
Uh, Give us, Lord, a time of focus that we may hear from you. Father, I ask that you guard me from error, that you protect me from misspeaking, and that you give me, Father, the the clarity uh, needed to truthfully proclaim what your word says. And Lord, we ask that all of this be to your glory and for your praise alone. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, so beginning in Ezra uh, chapter 7, I'd like to work for the first part of our, uh, of our sermon here. I'd like to work through the first nine verses, and I'd like to see what they illuminate to us about this historical figure, Ezra. The first thing we see in the first part of verse 1 is that this Ezra, uh, this, this setting and this introduction of the person Ezra is occurring within the reign of Artaxerxes, the king of Persia. We see after this as, as part of this first statement. And the this that's pointed out here is, of course, in reference to the events of chapter 6. And you'll remember over the last few weeks, we've seen the completion of Zerubbabel's temple. We've seen uh, the celebration of the Passover. So after those events that we've been looking at the past couple of weeks, uh, we're beginning to look now at, at a different phase, a different phase of the, of the book of Ezra. The temple has been completed. The objective of the first wave of exiles returning from Babylon after 70 years, that has been accomplished now. And the worship of God of Israel has been reestablished in the holy city of Jerusalem. The time referenced here in Ezra was in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And while the identity of this Artaxerxes is disputed by some, For our purposes, we will assume that this is, in fact, the Artaxerxes who was preceded by Xerxes and who was followed by Darius, uh, Darius II. We'll revisit this subject next week, and I'm going to give you more detail as we get into the letter of Artaxerxes about his identity. But for right now, for this week, we're just going to uh, sort of rest in in the, the fact that this Artaxerxes is the one that we would expect. It was, in fact, the Artaxerxes mentioned in chapter 4. Um, based on the information that we see in verse 8, we see that this all happened within the seventh year of Artaxerxes. And we know that Ezra comes on the scene then about 458 B.C. This is some 57 years after the completion of the temple in chapter 6. So just to give you a sense of the, uh, of the time frame of this, we're, we're nearly 60 years removed from the events that concluded chapter 6. This was, in fact, the second wave of exiles that are returning from Jerusalem that we read about here in our text today. The first wave, of course, was under Zerubbabel and Yeshua. We saw that at the beginning of Ezra, and that was around the year 538, 537 B.C. The second wave now occurring under Ezra around 458 B.C., and there will be a third wave yet to come that will arrive under the leadership of Nehemiah to rebuild the walls of the city. And that will be around the year 444-445 B.C., just to provide sort of a historical uh, context there. The second thing that we see in this opening few verses is that Ezra takes great uh, pains to identify his genealogical identity. And if you noticed, I read those names very quickly. That is my uh, way of not getting anything wrong. If you say it fast enough, nobody can tell if it's right or wrong. So um, don't don't hold me to those pronunciations. But I, I think if you go through them quickly enough, it's it kind of rolls off the tongue. Doesn't really trip us up too badly. But we see this long line of uh, the son of the son of the son of, 
And in, in laying that out for us, uh, Ezra has actually given us an abridged genealogy. This is not the complete genealogy of Ezra back to Aaron. First Chronicles 6 actually contains a more complete version of this. The objective for Ezra here was not to establish a family tree necessarily with all of the details filled in. His objective was simply to point out that he had authority to speak on the issues that he's about to speak on because he comes from the tribe of Levi and he was from the line of Aaron. And this is very important because the priestly authority for the nation of Israel was vested by God in the line of Aaron. We would call that the Aaronic priesthood. So in legal terms, Ezra is making the case that he has standing with the Jewish people. And he's demonstrating that here in these first, uh, first few verses of chapter 1. It is very important that he does this because the role that he will play as almost like a second Moses reestablishing the law, recommitting the people of God to follow the teachings of God, it would be important for him to bear this, this authority as he brings this word to the people. Well, moving down then to Ezra chapter uh, 7, verse 6, we see that Ezra went up from Babylonia, presumably to Jerusalem. And the term up can be a little bit confusing. Uh, many times in Scripture we hear of people going up to Jerusalem. And in our context, we think, oh, well, I'm going to go up to Arkansas because that's north of us. And on a two-dimensional map, we see that Arkansas is up from where we are, or I'm going to go up to Branson, right? Um, that I just gave you my, my two favorite vacation locations, right? Um, but within the context of, of Scripture, the Bible often speaks of going up to Jerusalem, regardless of the direction from which people are coming. And the reason for that is there's a, there, there's a, a mountain range that divides the nation of Israel east to west. And on the ridge of this mountain range is where we find the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. So wherever you're coming from uh, in that area, if you're going to Jerusalem, you are in fact ascending the mountain. You are going up to Jerusalem. Also in verse 6, uh, we, we see pointed out very importantly that Ezra was in fact a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And this title, scribe, especially if we think about the New Testament context of the word, likely has negative connotations for us. Remember, Jesus warned his followers to listen to the scribes, but not to imitate them. Okay, Think about what, he, what Jesus says in Matthew 23. He said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. And as we're going to see with, uh, with Ezra today, this warning regarding scribes really is not in reference to him because he indeed practiced what he preached. He was a great example of the scribal tradition and, and what could be uh, accomplished through the scribes as they proclaim and teach the law of God to the people. So this very negative view that we might associate with scribes is not applicable to Ezra today as he was a faithful servant of God. Well, one other thing that we'll note about Ezra in chapter 7, verse 6, is that he was in fact favored by God and man. We read in verse 6c 
that the king granted him, this is King Artaxerxes, granted him all that he had asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. We see here that Ezra the scribe, who was well studied in the law of God, it was handed down by the Mosaic Code, he was viewed very favorably by King Artaxerxes. And this is not necessarily a surprise. We have other examples in scriptures where wicked political leaders were often influenced positively by the faithful witness of God's righteous servants. And we can immediately think of two, I think, that maybe come to most of our minds. They would be Joseph and who else? I like to ask questions every now and then just to see if anybody's awake. Who's another faithful servant of God who influenced a wicked leader? Maybe Daniel, maybe Daniel, right? Who said, I heard somebody say, yes, they, they got it right. Um, yes, uh, Daniel was in fact used of God uh, within a very pagan and wicked context. So it's not at all surprising to see here that the king granted Ezra all that he asked. But look what, look what Ezra does at the end of this verse to clarify um, why the king granted him all that he asked. He says, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. So Ezra, speaking of himself in the third person here, notes that the reason he was viewed favorably by the king is not that Ezra was like the king, not that Ezra was wicked and participated in the things of the pagan nation that he was uh, occupied by, but the hand of the Lord was on him, and because of that, he was granted whatever he asked by this pagan king. Well, the last thing that we'll note um, from this first section here um, regarding Ezra is that he was used to lead others from Babylonia up to Jerusalem. In verses 7 through 9, we see sort of a recap of, of the things that have been already said in verses 1 through 6. Let me reread that for us just by way of recapping who this person Ezra was. There went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes, the king, some of the people of Israel, some of the priests and Levites, the singers and gatekeepers, and the temple servants. We see there in verse 7 the same offices that we've already become familiar with from Ezra chapter 3. In verse 8 now we see that Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month which was in the seventh year of the king. So we get more detail, additional detail about Ezra and the trip that he made from Babylonia up to Jerusalem. We see that on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia, and on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem. So there we see from Scripture uh, the amount of time that it took Ezra and his accompanying uh, people that were joining him on this journey took them four months to go from Babylonia up to Jerusalem. Um, I think that is a, uh, without getting into too much detail, without getting into too much of a history lesson, I think this gives us an idea of who Ezra was. He was selected by God to lead this second wave of exiles from Babylon up to Jerusalem. He was a man who was thought highly of by the king, Artaxerxes. We're going to see next week a glowing recommendation and support letter from Artaxerxes on behalf of, of Ezra and those he would lead to Jerusalem. And we see that, that Ezra was, in fact, a very faithful scribe contrasted with some of the scribes that we might uh, think of from the New Testament. 
Well, this brings us to our second major point where I would like to spend the bulk of our time this morning. And this is going to be taken from Ezra 7 and verse 10. Ezra 7 and verse 10. I'd like for us to consider in this verse the things that we need to learn today from the example of Ezra. So reading in Ezra 7 and verse 10, we see, For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord, and to do it, and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. So today, for the remainder of our time, I'd like for us to consider these three things that we learn from the example of Ezra. That Ezra studied the law of God, that he lived the law of God, and that he taught the law of God. Okay, first of all, regarding the study of the law of God, we're told that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord. Implicit in this is the idea that this was not a casual or devotional reading of God's word. I think a lot of times we might fall into sort of the routine of just kind of uh, reading our four or five verses for the day, and, and that's, that's how we keep up with our reading of God's Word. And devotional reading is very important. Um, we don't always, every time we read the Bible, have to do an in-depth word study of something or, or seek out some doctrine that we're not familiar with. However, if we limit our reading to, uh, to the bare minimum, if you will, surface-level consumption of the Scriptures, I think we're, we're missing uh, the point. We're missing the riches of God's Word. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 tells us that blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. I think the question that we all have to ask ourselves is, do we delight in the law of the Lord? As God's people, do we earnestly desire to know God's word and his precepts? Or are we content with a surface-level connection to his revealed will in sacred scripture? I think I can just be transparent and say that it is to my great shame uh, that I must admit oftentimes I am far too satisfied with far too little knowledge of God's law and his word to me as a believer. So this, this idea that, uh, that Ezra committed himself, the desires of his heart, the things that he was most passionate about was to study and learn and live and teach the law of God, I think is a great lesson for us today. Well, the question then has to be asked, is the law of God that Ezra was so intent on learning and living and teaching, is that a different law than we would look at today and that we should be learning from and living out. And I would like to make the case today that no, it's, it's, it's the same. It's the same. God's law um, for the old covenant people has a different administration in the new covenant, but it is absolutely applicable to us today. And I know some of us are already hearing in the back of our mind because we've heard this so many times in different contexts, but we've heard the idea that as New Testament believers, we are no longer under law, but we are under grace. And that's a very, very true statement. It's, it's a, that's exactly um, an important point to make. And I think that <clears throat> over the course of the rest of this sermon today, what I'd like for us to do is identify what it means to be under grace and not under the weight of the law. So in determining the validity of God's law today, I think we have to start with asking a question. 
and, and, and sort of having this understanding of what is the law of God. And for our purposes today, I'd like to submit a definition to you and ask you to keep this simple definition in your mind. Simply stated, the law of God is the righteous standard of his perfect holiness, which he requires of all those he has created. If we think of the law of God, his commands, his precepts, if we can reduce it down to one simple thing, it would be that the law of God is the righteous standard of his perfect holiness. And this standard is required of all of those whom he has created. God as our creator has the right to demand of his creatures perfect obedience to his righteous standard. This is the case for all of humanity, but even more so for those of us whom he has redeemed by the blood of his son. Consider 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. We're told there that as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And in this passage, Peter is quoting Leviticus 11, Leviticus 19, Leviticus 20. So just as Ezra studied the law of God, it is also important for New Testament believers to be continually confronted with this righteous standard of God's perfect holiness. That's what his law is. But what about this oft-quoted passage from the Apostle Paul that, that we are no longer under law, but we are under grace? Well, that, that, is a, that is a beautiful passage of Scripture, and I'd like for us to take a moment and turn there. I'd like to examine what this looks like within the New Testament for us to be called to adhere to the law of God, recognizing that we're no longer under its weight, but we are, in fact, under the grace of Christ. Look with me to Romans chapter 6. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. I'd like for you to put your eyes on this. We're going to take a larger section of this, beginning in verse 12. The verse in question is Romans 14, but I'd like to put this in its greater context as we seek to understand what we can learn from Ezra as he set his heart to study the law of God. Romans 6, beginning in verse 12. We read there, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, to make you obey its passions. Do not present yourself, uh, sorry, do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Continuing then in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed." And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. So as we conclude this passage at verse 19, 
I think it becomes apparent to us, it should be apparent from this context, that when we say we are under grace and not under law, that is not a license for us to abandon the moral teachings of God. We are called all the more to love the law of God and to study the law of God as Ezra has done. I hope that we see from this context that as believers, we're not to treat God's righteous standard, which is his law, as some outdated thing that we can just discard in exchange for grace. That's not the way this works. We are no longer to present ourselves as slaves of lawlessness. That's the effect of grace in our life. But rather, we are to be slaves to righteousness. Well, how do we do that? How do we do this in the same way that Ezra did? By the study and the commitment to the law of God. Well, some typical questions flow from this, right? If we are to commit ourselves in the way that Ezra did to the law, does this mean that we can no longer eat shellfish or bacon? Right? The answer to that very, very quickly to make sure that we diffuse this is no, by no means. We are absolutely free to eat uh, whatever God has given to us, and we, and we eat that with gratefulness. So someone, please pass the bacon-wrapped shrimp. That is, that is a beautiful thing, okay? The, the other question that comes up often in this line of discussion is, uh, won't we become legalistic if we begin to take the law of God too seriously? That's another objection that we often hear, and the answer to that, of course, is no. Not if we adopt a biblical view of God's law. And that's the key to this, is understanding that when we apply God's law lawfully, it is a benefit to us. And we can, we can take joy and, and we can allow it to be the desire of our heart in the same way that Ezra did. Unfortunately, in our day, it seems that in the church we have become almost embarrassed at times of the law of God in the Old Testament. It sounds too harsh for our modern sensibilities. And this has even led to generally what, would, what some would call an unhitching from the law of God from the Old Testament by many in the church. Well, the Apostle Paul certainly did not seem to be in favor of that in his letter to the Romans. Nor did he leave this impression or leave this as an option in his first letter to Timothy. I'd like to read to you from 1 Timothy chapter 1. You can write some of these down. We won't take time to go to all of them. But in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8... Um, Paul writes to young Timothy, Now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immortal, sorry, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, look at this passage briefly here, and, 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 and just think about verse 8. The law of God is good if one uses it lawfully. And then we get this litany of sins that the law would mitigate against. But then connected to this idea of using the law lawfully is that the law is to be used, verse 11, in accordance with the gospel. Friends, I'd like to submit to you that according to this passage, we cannot disconnect the law and the gospel and throw one away and, and choose between one or the other. When, when the law is rightly perceived and understood and studied, it points us to Christ. It points us to the one since we could not keep the law the law points us to the one who did keep it perfectly on our behalf. 
Law and gospel are not two mutually exclusive things. Together they present a beautiful picture of what it means for God to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ, as we see in Romans chapter 3. So if Paul's writings in favor of the abiding validity of the law are not convincing to you, maybe we should consider the words of Christ. And we believe every word in Scripture is inspired of God, but when we see the, the words of Christ, sometimes that even rings a little bit uh, more, uh, more resonantly in our mind, even if it shouldn't. But the words of Christ in Matthew 5, I think, are important to this. I'd ask you to turn there. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17. What we have here in, in the Sermon on the Mount is really the greatest teaching that's ever been recorded on Christian behavior and Christian ethics. And in this passage, Jesus makes it clear that he was not at all opposed to the law of God. Matthew 5, beginning in verse 17, we read, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So what does it mean for us to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees? Okay, remember, the scribes and the Pharisees, if, if they were good at nothing else, they were good at presenting the image of righteousness. They bore lots of plastic fruit. They dressed themselves up. Remember, Jesus called them whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones. And he called them that because they excelled in setting up external forms of works righteousness to appear righteous before men. So in this passage, we see Jesus using these scribes and Pharisees as the standard of how the law should not be used, okay? But to use the law lawfully, uh, according to Paul in, in his letter to Timothy and according to Jesus here, is a good thing because not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law until everything is accomplished. We see that our Savior, far from eliminating the law, came to fulfill the law. All right. So as we ask these questions and we start to think about what does it look like in today's context to use the law of God lawfully, I think two topics have to be covered. Um, first of all, we need to consider the three different types of law that we read in the Bible, particularly in the Old Testament. Okay, And then from there, we need to consider briefly the three uses of the law. Okay, So beginning with the three types of law, let's first establish that throughout Scripture, whenever we see the law, um, a lot of times we sort of take a uh, sort of a one-size-all approach to that. And I don't think we need to think of it in that way because there were, in fact, different types of law that had different purposes. Okay, Within the, the, the broadest definition of law, we have the moral law of God, the moral law of God. This is the simplest and broadest category of the law, and it's the one that we've defined already as the law of God being the righteous standard of his perfect holiness, which he requires of all those he has created. 
all people in all time and space are accountable to God's moral law. It's part of being created in the image of God. The Westminster Shorter Catechism gives this question an answer. Question 40 reads, What did God at first reveal to man for the rule of his obedience? The answer to that is, the rule which God at first revealed to man for his obedience was the moral law. That was the first and, and, and the, the, the greatest expression initially for man to obey God was the moral law. And we read about this moral law in Romans 2. Uh, we read there that when Gentiles who do not have the law, that is the written law code of Israel, when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the written law. So within the heart of man, all of those who are created as image bearers of God, they bear within them the marks of their creator, and they have this obligation to the moral law of God. Now, the problem is we can't live up to that. Because of the fall, because of the sin that accompanies all of us at our conception, we do not have the ability to make ourselves righteous in obedience to God's moral law. So for that reason, we see within the moral law of God some other laws that point us to the one who could live righteously before God, and that was Jesus Christ. This means that we have some laws in Scripture that we would call ceremonial laws. So we've got the moral law of God, and because we can't keep that and because we fail at that, we needed a Savior. And that Savior was predicted, prophesied, pointed to by these ceremonial laws in the Old Testament. This is a category of law that would include all the ordinances which served as types and shadows of the salvation which was to come in Christ as well as laws that would have kept Israel distinct from other nations in order to protect the prophesied lineage of the Messiah. So in, in this category of law, we see things like the, the sacrificial system and the yearly festivals. Those are ceremonial laws of, of, of the Old Testament. We see the dietary laws that we've already referenced, okay? Um, we see laws of circumcision, peculiar laws even, like those that would forbid the wearing of clothing with mixed fiber. And, and laws that would prevent us from intermarrying with, with different um, ethnicities of people. So speaking then of the contrast between the old covenant of laws and the new covenant of Christ, the writer of Hebrews is very helpful in, in helping us to see this distinction between the moral code of God and the ceremonial laws. Beginning in Hebrews uh, chapter 9, verse 9, we read that according to this arrangement, the arrangement of the old covenant, Gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience. That is the offering of, of the blood of bulls and goats, the sacrifices that we see in the Old Testament. But these deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. That would be until the time of Christ. Verse 11, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he, that is Christ, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. So when we look at these Old Testament um, weird, strange laws that we think, do we have to do that today? Of course we don't, because Christ 
because Jesus, he was the fulfillment. He did not come to abolish the law, rather he came to fulfill the law. And he did just that. So wear your spandex, eat a lobster, have some pork shoulder. Those, those old signs and symbols have been fulfilled in the person of Christ. With the perfect life, the substitutionary death, the victorious resurrection, and the triumphal ascension of Christ, all of these ceremonial laws were fulfilled as he is the substance anticipated in these types and shadows. Okay? I would go this far. I would say not even do we, are we not required to keep these ceremonial laws. If we were to endeavor to do that, we would be in sin because that would be to deny the substance that is spoken of in Hebrews with Christ being the fulfillment of those things. We shouldn't even do those old covenant ceremonial laws, keep those as a way of remembering because Christ has given his New Testament people ordinances by which we remember him. We identify ourselves with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection as we are baptized, and every week we come to the table and celebrate the memorial supper of Christ's body and blood that was shed for us. These are our new covenant ordinances, and we do not need the old ceremonial law. In fact, we should not sin by endeavoring to keep those. Okay, the third category of law that we must consider briefly is the civil or judicial law of the nation of Israel. This one gets a little bit uh, complex, but I, I hope to make this very simple for us today. These judicial laws of ancient Israel are the laws that governed the nation state in that time. These are laws that were given to that particular theocratic government, and they passed away at the collapse of that system in 70 A.D., how many of you remember that in, well, I don't, I don't mean remember like were you there, but from your history book, uh, you, you can remember, you can recall that at 70 AD, um, God essentially eliminated any possibility of keeping the ceremonial and civil laws because he demolished the temple at the hands of Titus and the Roman army, and he destroyed the city of Jerusalem in such a way that there's, it's never been possible for adherence to these old covenant uh, symbolic ceremonial laws and even the civil law of, of Israel, it was impossible to keep that after the devastation that was visited upon Jerusalem. So that being said, these judicial laws of Israel are not binding on us today, but they're not entirely irrelevant either. So consider this, while it's true that we're not obliged to keep the specific laws of ancient Israel, they are still helpful to us in understanding what it looks like when the moral law of God is applied in the civil sphere. Consider this classic example that is found in the Mosaic law requiring a parapet or a rail to be built around the roof of someone's house. In that day, people went up on the roofs of their house. That was used as an extension of their square footage, right? Um, today, we have pitched roofs. We don't spend a lot of time on our roofs, so there is no need for us to build a rail around a sloped roof. That would be a waste of a building code, and we have enough of those already, right? So, but, but even though we don't build a rail around our pitched roofs in strict obedience to the civil law of Israel, we can derive from that a particular principle that would cause us to say, hey, it's probably a good idea to build a fence around your swimming pool. Can you see that the moral principle of guarding and protecting those who are on your property would not have to be strictly observed in the keeping of the parapet law, 
but it could be derived from that that we should be responsible and protect the people that are on our property as we guard children from falling into our swimming pool, for example. Okay, Around here, as we've gone into this remodeling, um, there, there have been some thought given to how we need to make accessible our exits and things like that. That is completely consistent with the moral law that was represented in the civil code of ancient Israel. Theologians often call this the general equity principle. In other words, we do not have to keep the ancient laws of, of, of national Israel. However, the general equity that they bring about, in other words, the equivalence that we see in moral application to today's law, is very helpful. In fact, we see the effects of Christianity on the West as many of the principles of modern jurisprudence find their origin within the civil law of Israel. For example, um, we are all familiar with the legal principle that we are innocent until proven guilty. Well, that is biblical. That is derived actually from Deuteronomy 19, where the burden of proof rests on the accuser. So when we go to the, when we're accused of a crime, um, we are expected to give a defense of ourselves, but we do not have to prove that we are innocent. The burden of proof lies on the accuser. We see that in Deuteronomy 19. In Deuteronomy 25, we see that the laws regarding equal weights and measures are a basis for equality under the law. So there's a lot of ways in which the ancient law of Israel is not directly applied to us today in terms of us having to keep those laws, but the moral principles associated with them can be very helpful and should be observed because they are a part of God's word. Again, in case we're getting too far off the topic today, this is what it means to set your heart to know and understand and live the word of God. Well, uh, for, for today, I had, I had wanted to mention three uses of the law. Um, if you want to talk about that, um, we'll talk after church. Uh, that, that's a fascinating concept um, that is derived from the writings of John Calvin. Uh, as he talks about the various ways in which the law of God can be used, he sees it, first of all, as a mirror that reflects our sin. He sees the second use of the law as a general common grace that organizes societies. And John Calvin also sees the law of God as providing an ongoing barometer of our sanctification. We've even seen that in Scripture already that when in the, in the passage in first peter that when we are uh, redeemed by the blood of christ we see that we have an affection for and a love for the law of god that guides our sanctification for right now um, we will we will leave that discussion of the law and look to the second thing that we are to learn from ezra and that is that ezra not only learned the law of god but he lived the law of god and this is very important for us we are to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Of course, James chapter 1 uh, is, is the passage that we immediately think of. But be doers of the word, not hearers only. Because when you do that, you are deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his, nat is his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty and perseveres being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts he will be blessed in his doing there is no coincidence that the personal qualifications for elders and deacons as they lead in the church begins with a life that is marked by obedience to god 
We even see Paul's criticism. We've already looked at Romans 2 once today, but we see Paul's criticism of the Pharisees along these same lines. He asked them, you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and you boast in God and you know his will and approve what is excellent because you were instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind and a light to those who are in darkness, you are an instructor to the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of knowledge and truth. Yet, when you preach against stealing, do you steal? When you preach against adultery, do you commit adultery? So Paul is throwing this at them. You people are very educated when it comes to the law of God. You know the precepts of God, but do you obey them? Do you do them? And I would like to pose that question for us today. Those of us who seek to study and to know the law of God, we must do the law of God as well. We must not let it be something that is theoretical. We must not, must not let it be something that is cold, dead doctrine. But it should be the thing that drives us and motivates us to, to worship God and to live for Him. Otherwise, we're left with simply a pharisaical, legalistic sense of self-righteousness. And it neither points others to Christ nor glorifies God. So I would encourage us today not to be merely a hearer of the law, not to be merely someone who is well-schooled in what's right and wrong, but be someone who embodies that as the power of the Spirit works through our lives. Well, the final thing that we're going to learn from Ezra today is that not only did he know the law of God, not only did he live out the law of God, but he taught the law of God. He instructed in the law of God. Because Ezra had set his heart to study God's law, he not only submitted to, him, to it himself, but he called others around him to submit to the statutes and rules of God. Many people would look at this and think, oh, well, this kind of gives me a pass. This is clearly directed at those who have been called to teach God's word. This is for John. This is for Evan, right? But the fact of the matter is we all bear a responsibility in this area. And I would root this in an understanding of the Great Commission. I think we can all recognize that when we are placed into the body of Christ, we have become the church. And the great commission that our Lord and Savior gave is a great commission to the church. And I would invite you to turn to one more passage today. Let's look together at Matthew 28. Matthew 28. I'm going to begin in verse 18. And I'd like to think for just a second about how this New Testament passage relates to Ezra's example of being a teacher of the law. Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, we see that Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, there are three components in this great commission. I think a lot of times we get stuck on the first one and maybe the second one, and we never quite find our way to the third one. Those of us who are in the body of Christ, those of us who make up the church, we are commanded by God to go. And as we go, we are to make disciples. We are to proclaim the message of the gospel to those that we see. When they are converted, they are to be baptized, bringing them into the church. And then from that point, they are to be taught to observe everything that Christ commanded. We've already seen that Christ, com Christ commands uh, include an adherence to and a love for the moral precepts of God. So what are we to teach? 
Well, we are to teach all that Christ commanded. What did Christ command? Well, He commanded that, uh, that we are to maintain the morality of God's law. We see this in Matthew 22. I'll read this passage. You don't have to turn there. But when the Pharisees heard that He had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked Jesus a question to test Him. He said, Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these, get this now, on these two commandments depends all the law and the prophets. If you want to keep the law in the same way that Ezra kept the law, we are to commit to the two commandments that Jesus just gave us here. We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And lest we think that is a New Testament concept, let's remember that Jesus is actually referencing Leviticus 19 when he commands people to love God and love neighbor. That is a beautiful summation of the tables of uh, the Decalogue of, of the Ten Commandments. The first four uh, regarding our love and devotion to God. The next six regarding our horizontal relationships and our love for our fellow man. So we see then within this Great Commission that there is a charge to teach what Christ taught. And Christ clearly taught the abiding validity of the moral law of God. So let me ask this. You're, you're, I'm sure maybe some of you are still thinking, well, I'm, I'm a student in high school. Um, how am I supposed to teach the law of God? Well, I'm, I, just, I just work a nine-to-five job and, and go home and have dinner with my family. How am I supposed to teach the moral precepts of God? Don't think that teaching requires a formal environment. Don't think that teaching requires a, a, any particular formal setup to happen. Teaching can happen over a cup of coffee as you have read, studied, applied, and as you communicate the law of God to your friend, to your neighbor. Men, if you are not actively studying, teaching, leading your wife and family, your wife and children, your family, in the laws of God, you are failing in the greatest charge that God has given you to do. So I would encourage you to look to the example of Ezra as we seek to study the law, to live the law, and then to impart that to the people that we have within our circles. So in terms of, of, of sort of conclusion here, and I appreciate your patience this morning, let us learn from Brother Ezra's example, okay? He studied the law in such a way that he set his heart on it. It was his heart's deepest affection was to know the law of God. But he didn't let it stop there. He faithfully submitted himself to the law that he was studying, that he was learning. And from there, let us take opportunities to offer instruction in righteousness, just as Ezra did. And I think that we can have a healthy uh, relationship with the law. And we can sing with the, with the psalmist in Psalm 119 how much we love the law and the ordinances and the precepts of our God. Because they are a perfect reflection of His holiness. And He does require obedience from those whom He has redeemed. Let us pray. Father, it is with great joy.